don't know about you, but I am excited. Well, hey, easy. You don't even know what I'm excited about yet. I like it, though. Okay, I'm excited. You're excited. That's good. Y'all, I can't wait to just get out in God's beautiful creation today. Come on. It's March, and it's going to be 60. Come on. I'm just telling you, in the north, we know how to praise God for weather just a little bit better in the south, here in the north than they do in the south, because they, they, they spoiled, right? Anyway, I was thinking about, you know, I was thinking this week, I was just reflecting, because we, we celebrated that, that, that year mark of, like, last March was kind of the moment where, you know, everything kind of went crazy, and, you know, our leaders, we had to make a decision to push everything online, and if I'm being real, if I go back a year ago and I just kind of reflect... Man, I, I was nervous. I was, you know, I had questions. And one of the questions was, like, God, what is our church going to look like as we kind of navigate through the season? And we are still navigating through it. But, man, I, I'm, I'm here to tell you, not only has our church made it through this season, but I believe we've thrived through this season. And we've seen, you know what we've seen? We've seen the faithfulness of an amazing God. And I just want to celebrate him today. Come on. Woo. He is so good, and he is so faithful. I'm just reminded over and over again, and I, I shouldn't need reminded, but I am reminded over and over again of how good and amazing and faithful God is to us. And, you know, we, we've been in this series we started last week called All Rise. And as we begin this morning, I, I kind of want to take you to some of those tense moments in your life. We've all experienced them, difficulties and circumstances in our life where maybe worry kind of rages and, and our anxiety kind of rises, and it's, it's tense, it's, it's worrisome, and we often feel tense because we're waiting on a decision, we're waiting on, on some for, so, form of information, right? And here's what I've, I've concluded about a lot of the tense moments in our lives, is they often include waiting, we don't like to wait, and it's very difficult to wait, and when we do wait, it can be very intense, and we don't have to wait a long time for it to be intense. It can be a short period or a long period. Let me give you some examples. For, for us as men, we, we, we know just a short wait can be intense, right? When we get down on one knee and we say to the girl of our dreams, will you marry me? And she's shocked, and she's like, oh my word, oh my word, and you're like, just answer me, okay? Just answer me. Because you, you never know what, what's about to happen. Or maybe as you, you know, skip ahead in your marriage, right, the, the waiting of a pregnancy test. Just sitting there. Yeah, sometimes it's uh-oh, but sometimes it's yes, yes, right? <laughs> but like 30 seconds of waiting can be very agonizing, depending on what that little symbol says. Or maybe you're a teenager, right, in that, you know, you're trying out for the softball or the basketball team, and you, you get like two days to show them all you got, and then you wait about a week to, to know if you made the team or not. And that wait can be agonizing, or maybe it's with your health, right? You have a scan or a biopsy, and there's that day or two or three or, or week period where you are waiting on the results, and it's intense, it's agonizing, you're worried. And some of the tense moments in our lives stem from just waiting. And that's kind of where we left it off in this court case. Our court case of life is now we find ourselves waiting. Let me catch you up if you weren't here with us last week. We, we started with where every court case starts, right? We're looking through the greatest story in this series through the lens of a courtroom, through the layers of each character of the courtroom. And we started with the accuser. Right, We've been accused of something. We find it in Zechariah chapter 3. He has this vision of Joshua the high priest. It says, then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. 
And Satan, our mortal enemy, here's the prosecutor, our accuser, standing at his right hand to accuse him. Now, Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. And so what are we being accused of? Simply the same thing Joshua is, being unclean, wearing filthy rags. And what makes us unclean before God? It's simple. It's rebellion. It's disobedience. It is sin. And here's the problem. As our prosecutor, the devil, our mortal enemy, brings his case to this courtroom, he's got a really strong case. He's got lots and lots of evidence, video, and images of us living in rebellion to God. But yet somehow we've convinced ourselves that we can defend ourselves. And so we hide, we blame, and we bribe, hoping, and here's the question I asked you last week, as we make our case, as we defend ourselves from the rebellion that we've lived in, we, we ask this question, do we believe it's going to be enough to convince the judge? Do we believe it's going to be enough to sway the judge to rule in our favor? And here we are introduced to the third character. As we wait on the judge's ruling, we have to understand who the judge is in this court case. And that judge is God Almighty. God is the ultimate judge. In the court case of our lives, Satan is the prosecutor. We're defending ourselves, and God is sitting on the seat of authority. He is the one who presides over this case. And the Bible talks a lot about God as judge. Isaiah 33, it says, For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. It is he who will save us. Psalm 75, it says, It's God who judges. He brings one down, and he exalts another. And so as we stand on trial, we recognize who our judge is. It is God Almighty. And here's what we have to understand about judges. In, in any you know, court case in our society, defense attorneys and prosecutors often want to know who the judge is because out of who he is, they get a, an idea of how he rules based off of all the cases that he's walked through and sat through and all of his rulings. And so it's important for us to know in, in our case who the judge is because when we understand who God is, we get a glimpse of how he's going to rule. And I'm excited today because as we study this judge, we're going to get a proper theology. We're going to get a greater understanding of who God is. And God as our judge, I want to give you two buckets, two things to understand about God as judge. The first one, he upholds what is right. God as judge has never missed a case. He's 100% accurate all the time. He always finds out the truth, and you might ask the question, how does he do that? Well, it's based off of who he is, his characteristics, because who he is plays in tandem with him finding out the truth. And so who is God? Well, first and foremost, he is perfect. Our God, the God we just sang songs to about his love, is a perfect God. There is no flaw in him. First John, it says this, this is the message we've heard from him to declare to you. God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. Right? That's who our God is. And the very thing that we are being accused of, sin, God has never committed. He's perfect. He's flawless. Psalms 18, it says, as for God, his way is perfect. The Lord's word is flawless. And so the first thing we have to understand, that the reason why he can uphold what is true is because he's perfect. And out of his perfection comes the second thing. He is just. And isn't that what we're after in a, a courtroom setting? We're after justice, right? We want justice to be served, and it can be the very frustrating thing about our society run by human beings, right, is sometimes we don't feel like justice was served. 
But here's, here's the reality. The very thing that we're chasing after in this courtroom is the very definition of who God is. He is just. Deuteronomy 32, it says he is the rock. His works are perfect, so out of his perfection and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. So out of God's perfection comes his justice. And then third, he is righteous. And what you, what you notice is, as you read scriptures, a lot of times when it's describing God, when it's giving you an accurate theology of who God is, they'll use words like righteousness and perfection and, and holy interchangeably because these things about God, his characteristics, work in tandem with him knowing and understanding and getting at the truth. He is righteous. Psalm 7, 11 says it beautifully. It says, God is a righteous judge. It's hard to argue with that, right? It's pretty much clear as day. God is a righteous judge. Psalms 50, it says, and the heavens proclaim his righteousness for he is a God of justice. And so the first thing we have to understand about God as judge is, is, is that he is, he never always gets it right. He, he never, he always gets the truth. He upholds what is right. But second bucket, so he always gets the case right, but second bucket, he can't be swayed. So you cannot convince God as judge to rule in your favor by a certain means necessary, right? You can't change God because he's unchangeable. He can't be swayed. And out of this bucket, we see three things about God. The first one, he shows no bias. I love this about God, that it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter your background, your race, your ethnicity. It doesn't matter if you're rich or you're poor, you, ha you have a lot or you don't. God doesn't care because he treats everybody the same. First Peter 1, it says, Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially. God judges without partiality because he has no bias towards anybody. Out of that, secondly, we see he can't be bought. Right? You can't bribe God, even though that was part of our defense, to somehow you know, convince God with good deeds that, 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 he, that we would be acceptable to him, that, that we weren't guilty, right? You can't buy God. And this is different than our court system today because, hey, if you're rich enough and powerful enough, it doesn't matter what you do, as long as you write a big enough check, you'll be able to go free, not with God. God cannot be bought. Deuteronomy 10, it says, For the Lord your God is a God of gods and a Lord of lords. The great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality, who has no biases, and because of that, he accepts no bribes. So God can't be bought. He has no biases. And third, maybe the most scary thing in this court case is he knows everything. There is no evidence that's going to be introduced in this court case of our lives that God hasn't seen or known. Even the evidence that is left out of this court case, God knows. Look at Hebrews chapter 4. It says, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. I don't know, that terrifies me. God sees everything. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him who we must give an account. And so that is the judge presiding over this case. He never gets it wrong and he can't be bought or swayed. And so here's what you have to understand about God as judge, is the innocent go free and the guilty never do. So if you are walking into this court case and you are innocent, you are celebrating the fact that God is your judge because you know what it means for your life. Justice will be served. If you are innocent, you're like, yes, I have God, and he's gonna, be, he's gonna let me go free. I have a future. But if you are guilty, 
God is the last judge that you want. God is the last judge you want because you know in your guilt he will find out. He knows. The guilty never go free with God. And so as we look at our court case, the prosecutor brings all of his evidence that proves our guilt. We make our lousy defense. Here's the problem. If we're being real, God is not the judge we were hoping for. Right? We're standing there guilty as we are, and we were hoping that we could find some judge that somehow we could convince to rule in our favor. But then we see God, and we gulp in our throats because we know exactly who he is and how he rules based off of who he is. He's the last judge that we would want. And here comes that tense moment, right? We make our case, we defend ourselves, and then what do we have to do? We have to wait and wait and wait. And what are we waiting on? We are waiting on the judge, God himself, to make his ruling. And we have to recognize that that, that in this waiting period, in this tense moment, we know the judge is either going to say guilty or not guilty. And the ramifications of both of those things are severe. Because if God says not guilty, sweet, we have a future. We get to go free. We get to live and enjoy all the freedoms that we once had. But if he says guilty, it changes everything. If he says guilty, it means bondage. It means suffering. It means consequences. So put yourself in that scene. You are on trial and you are tensely waiting for the judge to walk in and declare his verdict. It's agonizing until he walks into the courtroom and we all rise in his presence and then the judge declares the verdict. He says the verdict is guilty. Guilty. That stings, right? But deep down, we know it's true. The evidence was clear. We are guilty of rebellion. We are guilty of sin. In fact, the Apostle Paul makes it so clear in the Bible. Romans 3 says, well then, what should we conclude? That we Jews are better than others? No, not at all. For we have already shown that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are under the power of sin. The very thing we're being accused of, we are all under that power. He says, as the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. So what the Apostle Paul clearly says is God's verdict is 100% accurate. We knew that because of who he was. He never misses a case. And so here we are. Here we stand guilty. Just imagine that for a second. The judge says, you are guilty. And guilty, those those words hit home, but we know what comes next, right? In any court case, once the verdict is, is, is cast out, once we recognize we're guilt, now we have to face sentencing. Out of our guilt, now we have to deal with the ramifications and the consequences of our guilt. And so now God, as judge, has to pour out his wrath, and he has to pour out his judgment and the sentencing on our lives because of our guilt. And we see the sentencing of our guilt way back where we saw our defense, Genesis chapter 3. Remember Genesis chapter 3, God created a perfect world where Adam and Eve lived in it. They dwelt in it, and they enjoyed the presence of God until they broke the only rule that God gave them. They disobeyed, they rebelled against God, and everything changed. 
And because of it, they hid from God, they blamed God, and over the course of the history of the Bible, we try to bribe God with good deeds, and it doesn't work. And so now Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden, and they have to face God, they have to look him square in the face and deal with the ramifications of their choice, their guilt, and so do we. And we see the first part of, of the sentencings of our guilt is pain in this world. The first agonizing thing, we, reality that we have to face because of our sin and because of our guilt is pain will be a part of the world we live in. Now, let me ask you a question. You can show me your hands online. You can throw me a hand emoji if you've experienced this. How many of you have experienced pain in this world? Huh, interesting, 100% of us, right? Right, we, we all navigate painful moments, painful circumstances, conflict, right? Pain is, is inevitable in this life, but we never connect the dots to why that is. The reason why pain exists in our society and in our culture and in our world is a direct correlation to our guilt. Because we stand before, before a holy God guilty, we experience pain. Do you realize God didn't design it that way? Do you realize that that was not God's original plan for us? Adam and Eve lived in a pain-free world and in a pain-free garden. And yet their choice changed everything, and it brought pain into our world. Genesis 3, we see this. It says, to the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat from it all the days of your life. And so here God says, hey, part of your sentence of your guilt is going to be pain. You're going to have to deal with it, navigate it. And he gives two examples of this. The first one, ladies, have you ever wondered why birthing a child is a painful experience? It's a direct correlation to our guilt. And, and, and I have seen this with my own eyes, watching my two girls uh, be born, right? And I, I'll just make it clear, I don't get the experience, but I was there for it, okay? And I know my role. Like, I walked into that hospital like, epidural, get her an epidural, right? Like, she needs an epidural. I know my role. I'm good at it. <laughs> and why do I have to go in the hospital screaming that? Because my wife is in pain, because birthing a child, it's, not the, it's a great experience. It's, the, the product of it is amazing, but it's a painful experience. And kudos to all you ladies. Like, okay? Those are the days where I'm like, thank God I'm a man. Hallelujah. And all the men said, amen. amen. Okay? But that is a direct correlation to our guilt as we stand before God. Think about work, right? Okay? Men and women go to work and... We wish when we showed up to work, it was just always good, right? Never stressful. It was like, you know, I love my job. I love my boss. But that's not reality, is it? Maybe a couple days, but most of us on Monday, we're like, God, do I have to go to that place? I hate my boss. I hate my coworkers. I don't even like what I do, God. Why is that? Why do we feel that way so many times? Because we're guilty. We're guilty of sin and rebellion to God, and that's part of the sentencing that we have to deal with every single day pain in this world, conflict, and out of that pain flows the second part of our sentencing, death. We all die, right? And even if you feel invincible at times, all it takes is a simple circumstance, a car accident, a diagnosis to change your mind and your way of thinking that we all have an expiration date. Again, God didn't design it that way. 
God, did, God made our bodies to actually be eternal, but because of sin, now we die. Right? No one argues that, but we, again, we don't correlate it to sin. We just, it's just normal, right? It's just, it's just what we do. Look at Genesis chapter 3. It says, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, from dust you are, and from dust you will return. Simple translation, you are going to die. There's going to be an expiration to all of our lives because of our guilt. Romans 6.23, it says, for the wages, the repercussions, the consequences of sin, of our guilt, of our disobedience, and rebellion to God is death. It's death. And Adam and Eve got a harsh reality when they left the Garden of Eden because a couple chapters later in Genesis, guess what Adam and Eve do? They have two sons, Cain and Abel. And guess what one does to the other? He kills them. He takes his life, and here they get a good glimpse of their consequences and their guilt looking at them as they mourn the loss of their son because their other son killed them. Because death exists now, even though God didn't design it that way. And that would be enough, right? Like, woo, that seems like a pretty harsh, like, sentencing God. Like, ugh, that's enough. And right, oftentimes we think pain and death are the worst parts of the sentencing, but it's not even close to the worst part. The worst part is a broken relationship with God. I think we have to come back to this as Christians to understand like, hey, I can navigate pain. I can deal with death. I cannot deal without not being close to God. We don't look at it that way. We mourn pain more than we mourn the broken relationship with God. But the reality is, the worst part about our guilt is it shattered and it broke our relationship with God. It put a barrier there in between us and God. Think about Adam and Eve for a second. They in the Garden of Eden hung out with God. They laughed with him. They joked with him. Can you imagine how amazing that would be? And then all of a sudden, because of their rebellion, because of their guilt, now they're hiding and blaming the very God that they dwelt with. They hung out with. Sin jacks up our relationship with God. It ruins it. Look what happens in Genesis 3. It says, so the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. The Garden of Eden represented perfection, God's original design, and because of their guilt, they're kicked out. And now the relationship Adam and Eve had with God is different. Why? Isaiah 59 says it perfectly. It says, but your iniquities, that's a scholarly word for sin, rebellion, disobedience. It says, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. And this sentencing is final. It's final. It's over. We can't change it. Like in our power, we can't fix this problem. It's not like jail today where you, you do some 10 years of good behavior and all of a sudden your sentencing gets a little bit less. No, in, in God's courtroom, this sentence is final. We can't change it. We don't have the power. And so we just have to deal with it. We have to navigate pain. We have to navigate death. And we have to somehow try to figure out, you know, we were separated from God and we can't good deeds our way back to him. We can't figure out a way. We're broken and there's nothing we can do to fix it. We're guilty. And man, I get the tension, right? Some of you are like, oh, geez. Why did I listen to this guy? <laughs> oh, all I learned today is I'm a loser, guilty, and I disappointed God. Man, can't wait to come back next week, Drew. <laughs> Woo! And I get that tension. I, listen, it's not super exciting for me to, to preach this. But I think we have to understand in this courtroom, recognizing we are guilty, I think we have to do two things. And I think the first thing we have to do is we must feel the weight of our sin. 
Guys, I I know sin seems appealing and seems pleasurable, but you have to recognize how destructive it is. It will destroy everything that you hold dearly to, everything that you want, but yet somehow, for some reason, we chase after the pleasure or the season of pleasure of sin at the cost of so many good things God wants to give us. And I know this journey of of feeling the weight of your sin isn't fun, but it's a must-do. It's not encouraging, but it's real. Sin is serious, and it will cost you greatly. It costs you the sentence of pain and death and separation from God. And I love Isaiah. He gives us this real, raw, authentic moment where he feels the weight of his sin. Look what he says. He says, woe to me. Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined. I'm ruined. He says, sin has ruined me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among the people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Here's what happened to Isaiah. He got a glimpse of God's perfection, and he felt the weight of his sin looking at a perfect God. He says, I'm ruined, God. I've messed it up. I've broken it, and I can't get back to you. Woe to me. He feels the weight. But secondly, not only do we have to feel the weight of our sin, but secondly, to taste the sweetness of the gospel, we must understand the bitterness of our guilty verdict. Right? Think about this. Have you you ever experienced good news? What makes good news that good? Right? Do you realize that the gospel defined is, is just good news? And what makes good news that good? Well, it's a recognition of how bad it was before you experienced the good news. Right, That's what we must do as Christ followers. If we truly want to see the depths and the riches of God's gospel, of Jesus Christ and what he did for us, we first have to recognize how wretched and how awful and how sinful and how rebellious we were. And when we recognize that that's where we were and God wants to take us there, it is a sweet taste from our Savior. To taste the sweetness of God's gospel, you got to first taste the bitterness and the sourness of your sin. And that's what today was designed to do. That's what the first two weeks of this series was designed to do. It's, it's a little bit dark. It's a little bit feels hopeless. But we were hopeless. We couldn't fix the problem. But yet, let me tell you something. Hope is over the horizon because next week, we're going to see this courtroom changed upside down. We're going to see what God only could do on our behalf. And so I don't want to leave you in the, the darkness. As much as I want you to feel the weight of your sin, I want to offer you just a glimmer of hope today. That hope, I hope, brings you back next week. Because I told you earlier, when we saw God as our judge, we, we looked and we realized we were guilty and we saw God be the judge of this court case. We're like, this is the last judge we want because of who he is. He's perfect. He's flawless. He always gets the guilty. But yet there's one thing I forgot to mention about God that may be actually God is the exact judge that we want. Because here's what you have to understand about God as our judge is he sees the worst in people and still loves them. Come on, just can we just say amen to that, everybody? Come on, that's good news today. This is incredible. It's, it's amazing. It's miraculous that somehow God can look at my life and listen, I know you might think, oh, I carry the title pastor, but there's some moments in my life 
that are ugly, that are messy, that I'm not proud of, and to know at my worst, to know in the wickedness of my sin, in my rebellion to God, at the worst moment in my life, God loved me right there. And he does you, you look in your past, look at your past, go to the worst part of it. Go to the biggest regret you have in your life when it comes to God, that moment in your life where you believe it's the darkest sin in your life. Do you recognize that God loves you there? It's amazing. It's incredible. It's wild. And we don't get it. Why? Because we don't love that way. Right? God doesn't love based off your condition or conditions. He has unconditional love for us, and yet we love based off of all those things. And so it's hard for our our minds to, to fathom and to grasp But the great news in this court case is the judge sees us guilty as we are. Sees us as wretches. Sees us as as, as a lost cause, really. And yet he loves us enough to not change who he is, but provide a way for us to step into freedom, even though we're guilty. Next week, we're going to see that. And it's going to be incredible, and it's going to be amazing. But I want you to understand today, I want you to cling to this hope that at your worst... God still loved you. And if you don't believe me, take his word for it. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, So far he has removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him.